Hello beautiful people and welcome to JSE Health's podcast series called Empowered Health. I'm your host Courtney Dixon and this is episode one of the series. In today's episode we're going to be exploring psychiatric pretenders. Now I bet you're probably thinking What on earth does that mean? And we'll go into detail about that. One of the most commonly known psychiatric pretenders would be when someone is hangry. So we'll discuss what the term hangry is. Is it a real thing? What does it mean? So get ready, sit back, get comfy and let's get into it. Okay, so to start off with, let's talk about hangry. Do you know what the term hangry means? Let's break it down. It's hunger and anger that we have sort of smooshed together and this little colloquialism has become a common term that is thrown around. So being angry or irritable due to hunger. Has this ever happened to you, I wonder? So I want you to imagine, say it's three o'clock. And this tends to be the typical time around which this happens post-lunch and in the afternoon when you're trying to stay focused at work. So it's three o'clock. Janice and Mark have been giving you the absolute cranks today um, with their ridiculous requests. And you're finding yourself getting more and more irritable and you're wanting to go for that sugary fix What exactly is going on here? I mean, it could be that Janice and Mark are just a real pain in the you-know-what. Or is there something else going on? Is there a reason that your tolerance level has dropped significantly? So when you're hangry, what exactly is going on here to cause this irritability? When your blood sugar drops, the hormones, cortisol... And adrenaline, which is also known as epinephrine, are released. And they are released in an attempt to raise your blood glucose levels back to normal. Your body is going under stress and it is triggering some of these emergency processes. And it's doing this to raise it back to a normal level so that you can function. But unfortunately for us, these hormones that are released also can lead to irritability. Not only are they at play here, but there's also a substance called neuropeptide Y. And it also creates that hunger feeling in your body when it needs more food. And this is also linked to aggression as well, which explains why you're finding everyone just that little bit more annoying. You're feeling a little bit more on edge. So that's a relief. You're not crazy. And it's not that everyone around you is an absolute idiot, although I can't vouch for that because I don't know what your workplace is like or what your environment is that you're working in. But it could And in most cases, when you're having this, particularly around that afternoon time, it is usually the irregularity in your blood glucose levels that are causing you to feel this way. And at these times when we're feeling like this, we often go for the quick sugary fix. Our body is wanting us to get sugar in as fast as possible. 
But being quick acting, these foods cause a spike in your blood glucose levels that eventually leads to you having another crash and that'll make you act all cranky all over again. Your body particularly craves sugar as it helps the brain uptake neurotransmitters faster. So it's kind of not your fault that that bit of chocolate was oh so tempting, not to mention when you crave chocolate, what you're really craving is magnesium, which also helps, magnesium helps calm your nervous system and your muscles. So there's a reason why that chocolate was just oh, needed and felt really irresistible not only the sugar to help with the neurotransmitters being uptaken by your brain faster so that you can keep focusing, working on what you're doing and feeling alert, but also so that you could get that magnesium to help with your nervous system remain calm. So you're not crazy. That's a relief. Now, sugar dysregulation is a topic all to itself And I'll be going into that in a future podcast, so don't worry, we'll get there. But what are some other psychiatric pretenders that may show themselves as depression, anxiety, fatigue and brain fog? So that's what I'm talking about when I say psychiatric pretenders. It's something that's causing a psychological response or a change in your mood or behavior and it's caused by something physiological, so something from your body, not something necessarily directly from a mind state. So one thing that people keep feeling or thinking about mental health disorders is that if you have, for example, depression, that there's a personality flaw or personality trait that you are just inclined with who you are to be predisposed to that particular behavior. But that's not the whole picture and that's actually not true. It's not a deficit in your your um, personality to have that disposition, there are a lot of physiological things that might be grumbling on in the background making you feel that way that are quite reversible and in the majority of cases it is. So do not think that you are broken if you suffer from any of those conditions. There may be something that just has not been uncovered for you and a lot of cases there is. So we'll go through the top five that can mask themselves as those conditions. The five we're going to go through today is one, we'll touch a little bit on blood sugar instability, but as I said, we'll go into that in a lot more detail in future ones. Glucose intolerance. We'll touch on medications, B12 deficiency, as well as thyroid autoimmunity. Now I know these are really big topics that can be addressed on their own, so we'll do that. But just to give you an understanding, uh, we'll run through these top five because they're the top five that we do see out there. That doesn't mean that other things don't contribute or cause these conditions, but these are states or substances that can make you seem like you have mood instability. 
So sugar, we already touched on this with being hangry. And yes, being hangry is a real thing. For me personally, I would get quite angry. (laughs) When I would get hungry, I'd find myself really snappy to the point where people at work would know and they would throw me some food before they needed to tell me any bad news, like a cookie or something, because that was my um, little delectable go-to was a cookie. A Byron Bay Dotty cookie, by the way. It couldn't be any other cookie. But... um, you know, it's a, it is a real thing until you learn how to stabilize those blood glucose levels. So sugar is the most important and most prevalent that affects our mood. If it's out of whack, it can lead you to being accidentally diagnosed as having anxiety, poor concentration, ADHD, panic attacks and bipolar disorder. It has an addictive potential that is unparalleled. It gives you the short-term gain for the long-term suffering, especially if the sugar you're getting is from processed foods. Now that is one hell of a roller coaster for your body to go on. Your body doesn't like having peaks and troughs and when you're loading yourself up with a big glucose load, that is exactly what's happening. You're going up the mountain, you're getting your spike in your blood glucose, and particularly if it's a quick-acting source, it wears off, and then you come plummeting back down and feel worse. So you get the highs and the lows, and you're constantly swinging, and your body actually doesn't like to be in that fluctuating state. It much prefers to be rather constant or pretty pretty consistent with where it's sitting in terms of your blood glucose. So that was number one, sugar. Number two is gluten. Now gluten gets a lot of publicity, particularly at the moment um, with the rise in celiac disease, but also in non-celiac patients or people that are having symptoms to gluten. So you can have a sensitivity or an intolerance, but not necessarily celiac disease itself. Celiac disease is a lot more severe. But why is gluten on here then? Well, because gluten can leave you feeling foggy, depressed, and it is linked to so many autoimmune conditions such as lupus and MS. The New England Journal of Medicine which is quite a conservative journal, by the way, reported a case where a 37-year-old female with a restraining order was admitted to hospital with thyroid symptoms. She was found to be gluten intolerant, not celiac. And after being put on a gluten-free diet for two months, she was off all psychiatric medication and back to her baseline. Now that's pretty amazing just by removing one offending food group from her diet that clearly was not agreeing with her. That's a significant turnaround when medications weren't doing anything for that woman. So I just want that to sink in for you a minute for you. Now gluten increases abdominal bloating and pain can cause stomachitis, depression and brain fog. Gluten also has an emotional effect on us. People in another study, when they were blindfolded, knew when they were eating gluten, even though they couldn't see it, um, all they could do was 
pick up the food and taste it and they had other bread samples and other samples there of a similar consistency. But patients knew when they were being fed something that had gluten in it when they were having to document that down. And the reason they knew is because gluten has an almost opiate-like action on us. So when I say opiates, do you know what I mean there? So opiates are a group of drugs that give a euphoric and also a pain-relieving action in the body. So this substance, gluten, which is like the sticky, doughy part, it makes it all stretchy inside bread, that can have that action on it. Now, I bet you're thinking, come off it, Courtney, why all of a sudden is everyone having problems with bread and gluten when we've been eating this since baby Jesus was born? Well, There's actually a few theories on this, one of which is that our eternal ecology has shifted. So we're being too clean as it's termed. We're not outside in the, we're not outside playing in the dirt as children or as adults even. And we're not getting exposed to the microbes that we used to. We're washing our hands every 10 seconds and we're using some not so good hand um, sanitizers like triclosan which um, wipes out our bacteria, is absorbed into our skin and can actually be quite toxic to us. So we're being too clean now. We're too worried about getting sick. We're too worried about being exposed to germs. And because we're worried about being too clean, we don't have the proper internal microbiotic balance that then gives us our robust ability to deal with um, different stressors or insults that may come along. So one is that we're too clean now. The other, as part of this, that our internal ecology shift is also that our soil no longer has its own ecosystem. And that's because the food that we're growing, we have put too many chemicals and um, pollutants and things into the soil. We're farming so much that we're not putting enough nutrients back in there and it's quite stripped. So we're affecting the actual ecology in the soil and the, f- and the foods and that we're eating are then also not um, as nutritious as they should be. Obviously, what else can affect? So that can affect our internal system depending on the quality of the foods that we're eating. Also, our antibiotic use So when we use antibiotics, that also obviously, or maybe not so obviously for people, but it doesn't just kill the offending bacteria. It also kills the good bugs in our gut that we want to have there. It's not specific enough to target that, unfortunately, and only do and only affect the part or the bacteria that we want it to. So antibiotics is one way that our internal ecology can be shifted. And it's not just the antibiotics that we are taking when we get sick and we go see the doctor, even though they're overprescribed. It's also the antibiotics we're exposed to in our food because a lot of farmed animals are given antibiotics prophylactically. And when I say prophylactically, they're given them to prevent them getting infections because they're living in such cramped conditions now to meet human demands. So you're getting exposed to antibiotics through the meats that you eat. 
as well as in the water. So antibiotics have found their way into our drinking tap water as well. So we're getting exposed to antibiotics in a lot more ways than you might actually think. What else affects our internal ecology is non-natural births. So having C-sections, you are not exposed to mum's bacteria and to her bowel flora when you're coming out of the birth canal. So you're losing that colonisation when that happens. So it, the bacteria from mum doesn't have a chance to be exposed to us and to then establish itself within us and set up that healthy microflora for life. So if possible, we should always aim to have a natural birth. Now, sometimes that's just not possible. Sometimes there are other complications and to make sure that mum and bub are both safe, you need to have surgical interventions. But wherever possible, we should have natural births for all those other good benefits that come from that process too, like being squished out of the birth canal, helps squeeze the fluid out of the lungs, etc, etc. So that's a little bit of our internal ecology. But we also have a lost relationship with the bacteria inside our guts. So we've lost some of those bacteria along the way that help us break down gliden in ways that we humans can't. So gliden is one of the parts of gluten. And actually, we'll talk about this when we go into the microbiota a bit later on. But a lot of the foods that we eat and absorb, we don't actually do the work. For us to actually absorb the nutrients and get the benefits from the things we're eating, a lot of them have to be broken down, not by our human cells, but by the bacteria that live inside our gut. They need to do the hard work for us. They contain a lot more enzymes than our human cells do. They're a lot more specialised and equipped at dealing with chemicals and breaking down chemical bonds so that we these breakdown products the bacteria create for us, we can then absorb those nutrients and use them. If we don't have the right kind of bugs in there that can break things down for us, we're not going to be able to absorb it properly or we're going to have partially digested foods. And that seems to be one of the things. We seem to have lost part of the the relationship at least with the bacteria or lost some of them that really help break down gliden. So that's another theory why gluten is becoming such a problem in today's society. Also, as that kind of links into as we're talking about the gut, is actually the permeability of the gastrointestinal tract. So there's now, with the way our farming practices, a lot of wheat and those types of products are sprayed with dangerous chemicals on them. And we are then ingesting these foods, which sends alarm signals to our brain. So wheat is one that's quite heavily pesticided. And this exposure to the chemicals can actually make our gut inflamed and leaky, so the tight junctions to separate. So when I'm talking about tight junctions, just to clarify that, our cells sit next to each other, say in a gut lining, they're quite tight, they're really close together. And so things can't really squish in between those cells. When a gut becomes leaky, gaps form between those cells. And this is where it's called the tight junctions. So they 
open up and create almost like channels. And that way nutrients and fluids and all kinds of other things can pass through from the gut internally to our blood system and backwards and forwards like that. And so we can end up with the process being dirty if it's too leaky or there's too big of a gap allowing that transfer of partially digested food in a larger molecule state than what should be crossing for the normal gap that's there. So when we're talking about leaky gut, those are the sort of processes we're talking about. But I'll go into zonulin and what those sorts of things mean. So if you've heard the term zonulin with your gluten intolerance, um, we'll talk about that another time. So not only that, with farming practices in terms of the chemical spraying on it, that's then triggering off our um, alarm systems in our body, causing it to attack the wheat, which is what seem is another theory and a process that appears to be going on now. But it's also the refined starches with vegetable oils that are sprayed with glycoside and other powerful herbicides that are also not good for our cells. So there's talk that, okay, it's a herbicide, it's only meant to affect insects and bugs and their cell type and not to have any effects on humans. But we're finding that's not really the case with a lot of these pesticides. They're not good for the bugs. It's killing them off, but it's also doing damage to us if we're ingesting them too. So in why wheat and gluten in particular, which is a component, uh, is becoming so problematic. So that's another theory in there. A lot of it is that toxin exposure, but also GMO crops. Now, wheat is one of the most heavily GMO'd now. In Australia, we'd like to think that we are immune to this, but we are not. It is becoming more and more common for us to have GMO crops here as well. It's quite a problem in the States. Europe seemed to be relatively free from the problem for quite some time. So you'd find people when they were travelling, for example, would come to the US or Australia and say, oh, I really just can't eat bread here. It just bloats me and I feel awful. Yet when I'm in Europe and I'm travelling around through Italy and France, for example, and I'm eating lots of pizza and croissants and things like that, that I can eat them and there's no problem. Part of the reason for that is the GMO crops that are filtering into the markets here in Australia and the US, whereas it hasn't really hit Europe so much. Although, unfortunately, that is starting to change from the reports that we're seeing. As well as this, so GMO crops is another reason, as well as this, um, the fact that our testing for problems with gluten is not fantastic. So the lab tests that we have now are not completely accurate in diagnosis and they have a lot of shortcomings. So you can have So you'll often get false negatives, for example. And to do a gluten tolerance test, you have have to do a gluten load and you have to eat a whole heap of gluten foods. And a lot of times when people are suspecting and they're intuitively knowing and they're listening to their body and seeing the effect that food has, if people think that gluten's a problem, 
they often remove it themselves and they'll be off it for quite some time and then they want to go get tested to make sure. But you're not going to have that immune or that inflammatory response just from a couple of bits of wheat. You actually have to then load back up and a lot of people don't do that properly or don't want to do that because they're worried about having to deal with the pain and the bloating and all the rest of it. So testing is not 100% accurate on that. And even if you go and have a gastroscope and you're looking for celiacs, even that is not um, 100% as a diagnostic either, for even for celiacs. So there are a lot of shortcomings with the blood tests that we have and also some of the other more invasive ways of investigating. And just on this, you can have the most perfect poo and not have any gastrointestinal symptoms from gluten, but your manifestations of a problem with gluten intolerance may purely be mental. You might just be having the brain fog. You might just be experiencing the fatigue and those sorts of things. You don't have to have the plethora of symptoms. And this is where we get it wrong, we think. Because the textbook says, if you have this particular condition you've got to have all these symptoms. Sometimes people might only have one symptom linked in clearly with that condition or they might have a couple. But for some people such as this, you might think, oh, it can't be gluten. They're not having any tummy upset. They're not getting bloating. They're not getting this. But they're just tired all the time and they really can't focus and they're being very, very forgetful. And that is completely possible with a gluten intolerance. So don't think that just because things are being fed into our gut that the symptoms have to be purely gastrointestinal. They can manifest in other ways. So take a breather. We've just been chatting about gluten quite a bit. So we've covered a bit on sugar. We've covered gluten. Have a stretch. Move around. It's hard to sit and listen for this long, I've got to say. So we're going to be talking about number three next, which is medications. And they are most obviously out of the batch of medications that can affect your mood is the ones that are used to treat such conditions, such as your psychotropics, your antidepressants, anxiolytics, etc. As they are affecting neurotransmitter balance. So they're the most obvious ones when you think of things that can affect your mood because clearly that's what they're targeting and trying to do. This can be a good thing or this can be a bad thing. Have you read the side effects to a lot of antidepressants? Now I'm a pharmacist and I have to counsel people on medications when they're starting it. And if you actually sat and read the side effect of a lot of these medications, you would think twice about starting them and wondering or looking at options to try and resolve your condition in a more natural way if possible. Sometimes though you need it. Sometimes people just need medications and it's the crutch, but it shouldn't be the mainstay of treatment. We should be using other strategies to help assist the person and look at aiming to wean off the medications as soon as possible because we want people to have the empowerment and no strategies and ways in which they can manage themselves better. 
The problem is these antidepressants and medications in mental health are often given indiscriminately without looking at the specific imbalance that you may have in your neurotransmitters and what other factors are contributing to you actually feeling the way that you do. Now, this is not to bash medications whatsoever. It's just they need to be used a little bit more judiciously than they are They are not the be-all, end-all. They are masking symptoms, but they're not treating the cause. So you still have to work on the cause. If your symptoms are bad enough, you might need them, like I said. But you should be looking at all your practitioners who are managing, helping you manage your health, should be looking at what the underlying and causative factors are and addressing and removing some of those factors together with you or looking at management strategies of how to deal with them and best minimize them. So another medication, so they're the obvious ones in terms of what can affect your mood and balance, but a not so obvious one is the oral contraceptive pill. It can alter your mood and that's all types of the oral contraceptive pill, not just the high dose estrogen ones. Not only that, but the oral contraceptive pill can decrease libido, bind up more of your thyroid hormones and sex hormones, including testosterone. So your thyroid hormone is also important in terms of your energy up and go feeling good it is like your energizer hormone the oral contraceptive pill also depletes you of b6 vitamin b6 zinc selenium phosphorus and magnesium and as already touched on magnesium is really important for helping stabilize and settle your nervous system B6 is also really, really important for the nervous system, as is zinc. So you're being depleted of these nutrients that actually help you, uh, you actually create um, your neurotransmitters. So they are involved in the pathways for the creation of certain neurotransmitters. These nutrients are important in your methylation pathways as well to allow energy. And often in a lot of these mental conditions, people are lacking a lot of energy and you have higher demands when you're under a stressful state for some of these nutrients as well. So not only if you're stressed will they be being depleted, but if you're on the oral contraceptive pill and we know our diets now with the way food is grown and the soil is not as nutrient rich as it used to be. So you're getting like a triple whammy there in terms of having nutrient depletion that can lead you to having mood imbalances simply because you've put yourself in a state where you cannot create or you cannot make the neurotransmitters because you don't have the building blocks there in order to do it. And while we're talking about medications and mood balance... Let's not forget about statins. So statins are a group of cholesterol-lowering drugs. They're HMGA-CoA-reductase reductase inhibitors. Most people call the group statins because that's the end of the word. So it's like atorvastatin, resuvastatin, simvastatin. They end in statin. So you'll hear more commonly, um, general public-wise, and people around referring to them as that, as statins, because it's more easy for people to remember than the actual class the medication sits in. 
So these medications actually affect the brain's ability to think clearly and function. Now, how could something that's there for my cardiovascular disease to stop me having heart attacks and stroke cause that effect in my brain? Well, cholesterol is needed by the body and the brain in particular. Even the so-called bad cholesterol, your body in fact uses it. Everything has its place in the body. It's all about balance rather than this is good and this is bad. In fact, your brain's dry weight is 60% fat. So you can see why the brain needs some fat. So if you're taking a drug like a statin, you are stopping the natural production of cholesterol in your body. So it blocks a pathway in your liver and stops your body making cholesterol. And then you're only relying on the cholesterol intake that you're having orally. Now, if you have cardiovascular disease, often your cardiologist will tell you you need to avoid fats. So you can see how you then you've blocked the pathway in your body to create some that it needs. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Why would your body have a pathway to make cholesterol if it wasn't important? Your body doesn't have pathways and processes that exist for nothing. So if you're blocking that and you're blocking the oral intake, what has your brain got then to use in order to keep that 60% fat organ happy and functioning clearly? It doesn't. It doesn't have that. Is a better strategy is to manage your cholesterol through diet. Now, that's another topic into itself, but a lot of the time when people have high cholesterol, it's not necessarily the fat intake that they are having that's the problem. It's the sugar intake and the sugars that are being converted and forming triglycerides, etc., and making the blood vessels all sticky. That's the problem, not necessarily fat intake. So again, this comes back to my point. Our first step should be looking at what things we can do non-pharmacologically, so without using drugs, before we dive in there. So in the terms of cholesterol, we want to be trying to modify our cholesterol levels by reducing our sugar, increasing our exercise, making sure that our liver is nice and healthy, doing those sorts of things first before we dive straight into a cholesterol medication that has flow-on effects not just for our cholesterol but also, as you can quite clearly see, for the functioning of our brain because this is the thing with medications. Medications usually work on one pathway But then that causes effects for all other processes because our bodies are so complicated. Our body uses different pathways and processes at different times for different things. So it may be problematic in one aspect, but that pathway might be used for something beneficial in another context. And if you're completely blocking or stopping that process from happening, you may be inadvertently causing other effects like here. You don't have that cholesterol for your brain to be nice and happy. Another medication that can cause mood imbalances and effects that you wouldn't think of is proton pump inhibitors. Now these are used 
all over and way too much in fact. I know the MPS uh, was doing a big push to try and get GPs and pharmacists to review how many proton pump inhibitors patients were on because of the risk of osteoporosis with long-term use. But not only that, proton pump inhibitors, they're a group of medications that are to reduce stomach acid, so for people with reflux. Now, you can buy these over the counter from your chemist and you can also get them on a script. And these medications, because they're reducing stomach acid, they decrease our ability to absorb vitamin B12 because we need sufficient stomach acid in order to pull the B12 out of our protein and they affect the microbiota, so the bugs, the natural healthy good bugs that are living in our gastrointestinal tract. And once your microbiota is out, you can have psychological imbalances, not to mention methylation issues and homocysteine recycling. Homocysteine recycling is not a good thing. Homocysteine has been very clearly linked in a number of studies to cardiovascular disease when it's at higher levels. Now, we've covered a few medications here, but don't forget about vaccines, antibiotics, painkillers, and xenoestrogens. They can all affect your neurological homeostasis or balance. That's quite a list, hey? But there are a lot more medications, but there are a few of the main ones that you should be aware of that can have neurological effects. Always have a look at what side effects are linked in with the medications that you are prescribed and have a chat with a qualified professional about them. Particularly if you're on multiple agents, the risk of polypharmacy, so multiple drugs causing uh, imbalances or effects that are undesirable, it goes up with the more medications that you are on. And we're all individual. So I might be fine on that medication, but for you, it might cause a lot of concerns and side effects. And that's part of that genetics as well as individuality and our how well our liver pathways work for different medications and actually breaking down and processing it. So there's a lot of... complicated factors in there that can determine why I might be okay on it but you are having all kinds of problems. Take a deep breath we're almost there. So that was number three medications. What's our number four psychiatric pretender? It's B12 deficiency. So B12 deficiency can lead to depression symptoms in particular. 27% of severely depressed women are B12 deficient and that's been shown in quite a number of studies. So that's nearly a third of all women in the study, in this particular study, showed that anyway. As we don't have the study data to definitively prove that all the studies for this were done in women, we can 100% say that for women it's about a third, men it's likely the same. Now there was a case report of a 52-year-old woman that was postmenopausal and in a catatonic state. So for those of you who are not familiar with that medical term catatonic, it's a state where the person is not really interacting with the outside world. They're, they've almost crawled into their internal shell and you cannot get communication from them. You cannot get eye contact or engagement. 
um, it's actually really not a great state for someone to be in. So this lady, she was um, a vegetarian and found to be B12 deficient that was in this catatonic state. She was then given two injections of B12 and she returned to her baseline and started interacting, looking at people, talking again and becoming part of the world and leaving that insular shell. Now that's quite amazing that that happened just from two injections of B12. It can show you what happens when you are severely deficient in something that seems so simple, just some B12. But B12 is actually quite notoriously hard to absorb. You need good stomach acid levels to release it from food. And even if you're eating animal sources, which is more bioavailable and easier for our body to take up rather than plant sources, plant sources we often struggle to absorb. And that's why you find a lot of vegetarians or vegans are often B12 deficient. So if you are on one of those diets, you should be getting those levels tested regularly. And you may need to, well not may, in the majority of cases you have to be supplementing B12 to remain on that diet. Even if you are eating animal proteins which are easier to digest, you need a functioning gut in order to absorb B12. And so you may have to have some gut healing first. So even if you're eating the right foods, if your gut's leaky or inflamed and not able to absorb properly, then you're not going to get the benefits of eating that food anyway. So if you want to get some B12 in while you're having your gastrointestinal tract improved, things that you can do to get B12 in would be use sublingual formulation. So that means under your tongue. And that's the best option apart from injections as it bypasses the gastrointestinal tract. All right, so that was number three. Oh, number four, sorry. Lucky last, number five out of our top five psychiatric pretenders we're going to talk about is thyroid autoimmunity. Now, thyroid autoimmunity can affect mood balance. The best way to know if this is a problem for you is to get tested. There is no easy way. You can have a lot of symptoms for thyroid disorder, but that overlaps with a lot of other conditions. So the only way to clearly rule in or out a thyroid autoimmunity or hypothyroidism is to get your T, not just your TSH, your thyroid stimulating hormone checked, which is usually the first ones your doctor will do. They'll just do a TSH. That doesn't tell you the whole picture. You actually need to get the full panel done, which includes your T4 and your T3. There's things such as reverse T3 and T4 that you can look for and the conversions for that, but that's a whole thyroid talk on its own. Unfortunately, fluoride in the water supply doubles your risk for developing hypothyroidism as it is an antagonist for iodine and iodine is needed in order to make your thyroid hormone. Your thyroid gland, which sits like a little butterfly-shaped thing around your throat area, actively sucks up any iodine that you eat. It stores it and keeps it there so that it can then make thyroid hormone. 
So iodine's really important and that's why iodine started to get added to table salt because we're really low here in Australia in iodine. So they started to supplement it in our breads. So you'll see on packets of breads and things iodine fortified as well as in your table salts. So that was the government's way of trying to avoid mass issues in the population with having thyroid problems and low iodine levels was to en masse blanket dump iodine into our food supplies. Agree with that or disagree with that, but that is what has been done here in an attempt as a public health strategy to avoid some problems with iodine deficiency. If you have any other nutrient deficiencies, you'll also have problems with thyroid hormone production such as if you're deficient in iron, iodine as we talked about, tyrosine, zinc, selenium, vitamin E, vitamin B2, B3, B6, vitamin C and vitamin D. So you can see there's quite a list there that can affect your thyroid production if some of them are out. Other factors that inhibit proper production of thyroid hormone include stress, infection, trauma, radiation, medications, fluoride as we talked about, toxins such as pesticides, mercury, cadmium, lead and autoimmune diseases such as celiac disease actually impacts your thyroid hormone. There's quite a strong link between celiacs and autoimmune conditions of the thyroid and that seems to be A common theme with autoimmune diseases, they tend to happen in clusters. So if you get one autoimmune condition, you are then triggered or primed to develop other autoimmune conditions. And it seems it's almost chicken and egg. If you have celiac problems or celiac disease, sorry, you are more prone to having thyroid problems. If you have thyroid problems, you're more prone to having celiac disease. They are very, very closely linked which shows the importance there of the guts in the immune processes in the body. Now, there is some good news. There are, in fact, things that can help improve your thyroid sensitivity at the cellular level. And these include vitamin A, exercise and zinc. So there's lots of kinks in the chain where you can have problems. So it might be that you're not producing it or that you're producing inactive forms or the forms that you have are being inactivated at the cellular level or your cells are just not being responsive or receptive to the hormones that they're receiving. So Or you might not even have, as talked about, the building blocks in order to actually build the the hormone. So it might not be the actual cells having a problem producing it. It might be that you haven't given them enough nutrients or building blocks in order to do what it needs to do. So there's lots of different steps and it's about looking at where the kink in the chain is in order to address it there. So there was quite a few covered there in the top five. So we had sugar. We had we had gluten, we had medications, we had B12 deficiency and then we finished it off there with thyroid autoimmunity. And there are a lot more things but these seem to be the most common ones that are grumbling around out there and then are not being picked up by medical professions. 
So if you think you have one of these pretenders, you need to go find someone such as a qualified naturopath or integrative doctor or someone or even your local GP if they're prepared to investigate and look a little bit further. And it's good if you have this ammunition to then go and explore some of these options yourself and look at and think, well, what am I doing and how do I respond when I eat this and how do I feel afterwards and could this potentially be a trigger for the way that I'm feeling? A lot is going into nutritional health and looking at mental health. So in Australia, we've been leading the way down in Melbourne with a study that clearly showed in depression the benefits of having a Mediterranean diet. That was the only intervention they did in this group and they showed a dramatic reduction in terms of depression without medications just by purely changing diets. So we're getting, we're doing more and more studies that are proving this. What you eat, the nutrients, the it's almost like the information that you're feeding your body and feeding your cells. It, those nutrients, if you're giving it good quality information, it can do so much. If you're feeding it junk, you're going to get junk back. So your bodies don't feel disheartened. Your body's ability to heal is greater than anyone permitted you to believe. All you need to do is help put it in a healing position in order to do that. So I encourage you if you think you've got some of these, seek out a practitioner, have a chat and see what could be going on for you and what might be possible there because it's not all in your head. There could be a very physiological, a very real reason and most of the times it is a very real reason for why you're feeling the way you're feeling. All right, well, we might leave it there for today. So thank you for joining me in episode one of Empowered Health with our topic today of psychiatric pretenders. So enjoy your day, evening, wherever you are in the world.